Hey there, we're about to start our free training, the 3 p.m. teacher that only happens once a year. Teachers are learning how to consistently leave school prepared and on time without bringing work home so that they can finally be present during precious family time at night and on the weekends. When you attend this free training, you get an hour PD certificate and other bonuses when you show up live. You will learn how to lesson plan faster, how to spend less time on grading, your actual teacher type, and how it's preventing you from really leaving school on time. I can't wait for you to join us so that you can finally have the best school year ever. Hey, I'm Kristen Donegan, and you're listening to Real Teacher Talk. I often say what's on a teacher's mind, and my mission is this. Help busy teachers leave school at three so they can finally enjoy their life outside of the classroom. Why? Because I know how tiring it is to have a never-ending checklist as a teacher and miss out on being fully present at home. On Real Teacher Talk, discover how to work smarter, not harder, enjoy teaching again, and still have plenty of time to shut off your brain outside of the classroom to do the things you love. Sound impossible? I promise it isn't. Hey everybody, welcome back to Real Teacher Talk. If you have ever wondered what to do as far as data collection, how to use that data, what to do with it all to be the best educator that you can be, you are in luck because today we have Dr. Matthew Courtney. He specializes in using data and research to support support schools and teachers like you as they work to improve teaching and learning He's been an educator, a researcher, and a policymaker and focuses on his efforts on building capacity in teachers and leaders to perform a deep analysis of learning. So Matthew, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Just reading all that, I'm like, wow. (laughs) He's probably the smartest person we've had on here so far. (laughs) So thanks. Can you tell us a bit before we kind of get started a bit about your education background and how you got to be where you're at today? Yeah, I'd love to. So I started my career as an elementary music teacher. I taught kindergarten through fifth grade, general music and choir, and just loved every minute of it. Um, but was frustrated as a teacher, as I think probably many of your listeners often are, with the sort of mandates and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the changes and the sort of why are we doing all the stuff that we're doing. Um, that was always really frustrating to me. And so I um, was really interested early on in my career in the why. Why are we doing this? And my principal would drive him crazy because I would go to him and say, why are we doing this? And he could never tell me why. Um, and so that's where, for me, research and data became a passion because I think teachers are so overworked. Our schools are asked to solve all of society's ills. <laughs> right. and, and if we can learn to use research and data and make decisions, I think we can make better, smarter decisions. If nothing else, we can rationalize the decisions that we're making. We can make intentional decisions. And so when my school closed, um, I had an opportunity to transition into full-time school improvement work. um, And I've been doing that work ever since. So cool. I bet all the teachers right now as they're driving to school, like praise hands, like, oh my (laughs) gosh, I can totally relate. Very cool. You said program improvement? That's right. So are you, because I've 
worked at schools that were in program improvement. Um, how did you get into that? Yeah, so um, really from a, a place of wondering and curiosity. Um, I had been working, I did some work in the nonprofit sector for a while where I was really working on helping teachers learn how to use research to make better decisions and improve their own teaching and learning. Um, and then I had an opportunity to move um, into a more formal role where I was working with schools who had those sort of identifications, right? Mm -hmm. Those sort of federal classifications and really digging in deep to say, okay, how do we make this process feel meaningful for schools who have uh, sort of fallen victim to this federal policy. And so um, that's where a lot of my data and research work today um, is situated and really thinking about how do we improve with intentionality. I love that. And I love that you said schools, you know, who are receiving like the funding rather than it just being, oh, it's a title one school because mm. it's not. I mean, See? that's a whole other yeah. issue, but it's just you receive title one funding. That's that's really it. Yeah. It's yeah. just one of many factors that describes your school. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know. I know. I, I yeah. My views on all that <laughs> has changed the, the longer I've been in education. Um, but I appreciate you for, for saying that. So you talk about data and research and things like that. What would you say to an educator who maybe has some sort of challenge, something happening in their classroom? What steps could they take to use data or research to try to figure out a solution? I love that question because so often as a classroom teacher, we're in our four walls and we can feel so isolated and alone. But the good news is you're not alone. We have a global network of teachers and researchers who are studying education every day. And so the problems that you're facing are not unique to you and your classroom. They exist in schools all over the world. And so if we can learn to tap into research and find sort of solutions solutions to our problems, if we can learn how to test and replicate those solutions in our classroom, we can solve them much faster. Um, one of my favorite stories from my time as a classroom teacher, I really struggled with um, the unsharpened pencil. <laughs> that was my nemesis. I taught groups of 30 kids every 30 minutes, rotating in and out. And so by the end of the day, I mean, I had hundreds of unsharpened pencils just chilling in a drawer. And who has time to sharpen them? Who has a pencil sharpener that can do 100 pencils? I mean, you do five and they burn out. And so when I was teaching, I said, okay, there's got to be a solution to this. And I stumbled upon an article about using ink pen um, in a, sort of a writer's workshop setting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, ink pens in the music classroom are like a huge no-no, even like all through college and my music teacher training, I never carried an ink pen because really? you never, ever write in music with an ink pen ever. Why is that? Um, well, it has to do a lot with... Um, copies and copyright law. It also has to do with changes from director to director. A lot of times we share music. So uh -huh. it's a huge no-no in the music environment. And I thought, well, but maybe in my classroom, <laughs> this could work. And so I found all this research about using ink pens and benefits of that, implemented that in classroom, threw all my pencils away. It was the greatest thing. So it's one of those things that's so silly, right? It's so, It feels like such a trivial thing to be like, oh, unsharpened pencils. But for me in the moment, that was a huge huge burden that was then creating sort of this domino effect of classroom management challenges mm -hmm. and preparation challenges and planning time challenges. And the research helped me solve that with such a simple, cheap and lasting solution. I love that. That's a lot. Actually, what we do in our program for teachers is where I looked at problems I was facing and I'm like, okay, how can I 
streamline this or make it easier so that we can maximize the short amount of instruction time you have every yeah. single day without needing to drink a bottle of wine every night. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> looking for those solutions. Now, yeah. how do educators know like what type of data to even collect to even come up with a solution? Like what would that look like? Yeah, a lot, when I say we need to be looking at data, a lot of educators kind of bristle because they think, oh, here's another little education consultant guy who's telling me <laughs> I have to do something else. Uh -huh. That's not what I'm telling you. Teachers are already collecting mountains of data every day. You collect attendance data, you collect behavior data, you collect grades, formative assessments, summative assessments, you do emotion checks on your kids. You're doing this work already. So what I want to help teachers do is say, okay, I've got this mountain of data. What am I doing with okay. it? How am I using it? And so um, that's where why I wrote the book, Exploratory Data Analysis in the Classroom, because this is a technique that uses very simple um, techniques that you can learn very quickly um, in a, any spreadsheet software. And... Um, mine insights out of your data. I like to say exploratory data analysis is like having a conversation with data instead of interrogating it, which is what a lot of us learn to do in college, right? We ask a <laughs> question, we find an answer. This is more about let's look at all the data and let's see what anomalies are there and what can we learn about our kids from those anomalies. It's a very relaxed, a very laid back way of working with data and a, and a way of working with data that doesn't require you to really do anything that you're not already doing. So what would you say to the teacher right now driving to school who's like, that sounds amazing. I don't have a ton of time. Like you don't know my classroom or you don't know what right. is going on this year. What would you say to them? Yeah. So I think if you aren't collecting data systemically already, if it's not a natural byproduct, then start with the data points that make the most sense to you. So um, this is a rule that I apply in lots of different contexts. Standardized testing is a good conversation because there's teachers who are very <laughs> strongly opinionated on one side or the other and uh -huh. everywhere in between. And so if standardized testing doesn't feel meaningful to you, don't spend your time working with it. Think about what you what you're collecting, what matters to you, and focus on those pieces of data first. And what I have found in working with hundreds of teachers over the years is that if you can start with the pieces that really matter to you, then you start to see how other pieces also matter to you down the road. Um, and I also think you know think unconventionally about the kinds of data that you're using. So um, a a piece of data that a lot of teachers don't think about is telephone numbers. How many times does this child's telephone number change over the course of the year? That's oh, a wow. metric that we yeah. all have, right? We all have our Rolodexes or our planner books or whatever, where we've crossed out a phone number, written a new one in. And if you've got a kid who's changing their, their phone number four or five times, that's a metric of social instability mm -hmm. in that kid's home life. It's data that you already have, but we just don't think about it that way. I would never have even thought to even look at that. What would you... Do if maybe that's that's hard to even figure out. Like a lot of the times, I didn't even know if their phone number is changing. So then, then what? Or what's another mm -hmm. maybe example that you could use? Yeah, another fun one that I like to use. Um, you know how we all have like the clipboards and we're walking around doing kind of those quick mm -hmm. checks and check minuses, right? We do those formative checks. So something I often tell teachers to add to that is like maybe a smiley face or a sad face. So the kid got it. Check. How do they feel about it? Mm. Happy face or sad face? And that's just like one extra little thing. It takes you 
a tenth of a second longer to do, but it gives you a whole nother data point because yeah. maybe it's great. Everybody's learning the task, but if my kids are miserable, <laughs> that's something that I need to know. If they're in tears, <laughs> exactly. but they got it. <laughs> exactly. What are we really doing here? I love that. What would you um, say? Because a lot of teachers are collecting, you say data, I say data. Does it matter which way? It doesn't matter. All right. Um, maybe because <laughs> I'm on, on the West Coast. I don't know. But who are like, okay, great. I have all of this and I'm presenting this to admin and to caregivers, but it seems like no one's listening to me or wanting to, to support or have the capabilities to even support what this child needs, then mm -hmm. what? Yeah, I always say that an evidence-informed educator is an empowered educator. And so yeah. the more that we can use data and include that research element too, to make stronger cases for our kids, the more successful that we're gonna be in the long run. Um, it is a mind shift change for a lot of people, a lot of um, administrators, a lot of elected officials, a lot of parents who are very involved in your school are not going to be ready to yeah. think about that next step. But the more that you can kind of bring that into the conversation, the more that you can point to specific pieces of data, specific pieces of research that support the change that needs to happen, um, the stronger your argument's going to be, and eventually somebody's going to hear you. But we kind of all have to pull up and do it together because mm -hmm. um, we really are changing the mindset of the whole field. Well, don't you think that's even a bigger issue though, when it's like, it's not just your admin, then it's because they have the district. And then there's like all these policies and different things. It's it's way at the tippy top there. And I yeah. think sometimes maybe that's why educators feel so defeated because it's like, I can only do so much in my classroom and it's such a bigger issue. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and I can certainly remember those days of feeling like I'm at the bottom of the avalanche. And I'll uh -huh. tell you, I've been in other roles. I've been in nonprofit leadership. I've been in education agency leadership and university leadership. And every position that I've landed in in education, I still feel like I'm at the bottom of the avalanche because there's just so many more people up above me. Um, one thing I always tell educators who want to become better advocates and use research and data to advocate is to fight the fight where the fight lives. Mm. And so when you've got a challenge, the first thing to think about in that policy challenge is who actually made this decision? Am I mad at my principal because of a decision that my school board made? Made. Well, that's not fair. And it's yeah. not changing anything. Am I mad at my school board for a decision that the federal government made? That's not fair. And that's not changing anything. So really taking the time to understand where that frustration actually belongs can get you a long way. Um, in terms of your advocacy. And I also think just in terms of your own sort of mental health and happiness, because if I'm always blaming everything on my principal <laughs> and it's not their fault, that's having a daily impact on my own mental and physical health too. I know they're in such a lose-lose situation. They <laughs> really are. I would never. <laughs> Hardest job in education, I think, is that of the principal. Right. So if you know, though, it's way above and beyond, mm -hmm. where do you put that energy or where do you focus change? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a couple of ways to think about this. <clears throat> so first, 
once you figure out where that fight really belongs, where who owns that frustration really, I think um, that is very empowering in, in and of itself. And being able to really engage in the process. So you have to learn how is policy made at that process. So if it's um, at your local school board level, what is the process for engaging in that policy? Is it a public comment? Is it Do they accept written comments? Are there work sessions? Um, if it's a state or federal level, do I have a relationship with my locally elected officials? You should have a relationship with your locally elected officials and, and they can help engage in those conversations with you. So I think it's very empowering in that sense. I also think sometimes it helps us to go, well, in my position and with the capacity and time and space that I have right now, I can't fight the federal government. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to kind of take this one, do the best I can with it and wait until I have an opportunity to inject in the policy space in a space where I can do that right now. See, and that's so tricky because I think so many educators want to, and because they're already overworked, it's like, I don't have the capacity to even make a change. And then it just becomes this cycle of, you know, next thing you know, 50 years down the line, it's still... You know, yeah. And I think too, that's where your professional associations come into play. That's where our nonprofit sector comes into play. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can't um, take off from work and go lobby the federal government. Most teachers can't. I don't think I know any teachers who have the ability to do that, but you can contribute and be a part of the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, or your um, content area, right? So I was part of the National Association for Music Educators when I was a classroom teacher. And being able to leverage those connections and those affiliations to elevate your voice when you don't have capacity to do it right now. I love that. And voting. I mean, it, it really and voting. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Be an engaged citizen all the way around. Yeah. Sorry, I got us a little off topic, but I know that's teachers okay. have wanted to to like kind of have some of that power back or like, how can I actually make a change? And those are some mm-hmm. really great ideas, especially for teachers who are overwhelmed um, right now. So all of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, what do you see right now? How are educators using research to um, inform their decisions and instruction and all that good stuff? Yeah, one of the spaces I'm doing a lot of work in right now is around um, action research mm-hmm. and really thinking about how can I take research methods and actually use them in my classroom, engage my students in that process to see if my innovations are working or not. I always like to say action research is kind of how we work smarter, not harder in education because we're always innovating and teachers are doing some really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But if we can apply that research lens and really evaluate what we're doing, is it really working or is it just fun? Um, And so we like (laughs) it, right? That's a question that we have to grapple with. Or is it working, but we don't like it. So we think it's not working, right? So there's a lot of like emotional stuff that comes into this. And if we can kind of put that research layer on top of it, um, I think we can make much more clear decisions, much more sound decisions and do so a little faster. I love that. So when you walk into a classroom, how can you tell if a teacher's used evidence or data to inform their instruction? Like, what are the telltale signs? Yeah, another awesome question. Um, I think um, one thing that you can always tell um, if data has been used to inform instruction is the kind of work that the kids are doing. Mm-hmm. And are all the kids doing the same thing? So we've mm-hmm. talked for 
more than a decade about differentiation and those kinds of things, but really doing that with a meaningful lens and thinking about what does the data say today about this kid today? Um, You can really tell when teachers are thinking at that individual student level. I think you can see that really clearly. I also think um, in conversation with that teacher before or after that lesson, um, don't talk to teachers during their lessons. That's so rude. Uh, (laughs) uh, But before or after that lesson, having that conversation, why did you do that? Mm -hmm. Why did you have this activity instead of this activity? Or I noticed the teacher across the hall was teaching the same content, but they did a different activity. Why did you make the decision that you made? Mm -hmm. And an evidence-informed educator will always be able to tell you why. And it's going to be the most rich, (laughs) insightful, full reason and rationale that you've ever heard is going to blow you away every time. I love that. How often do you get to do that? Like walking into classrooms and seeing what's going on? Yeah, I do that as much as I can. Um, I try to get into school several times a month. I also travel and do trainings. And so that allows me to build this sort of national network Mm -hmm. of teachers who I stay in touch with um, through my website and social media. And so a lot of times they'll send me things and say, oh, you know, oh, we talked about this. I did it. And here's this really cool thing that happened. Um, So that's always really um, fun for me to get to see that. That's so cool. And I love on principals. I know most people would say no, but I used to have a principal who would walk through daily just to see what's going on, just to check in. And I love when admins are more involved like that so they can yeah. see all the wonderful things happening. Yeah, I think they really should be. And that's part of being an evidence-informed administrator as well. Because if we think about, you know, do you, it's, a, it's the same thing, right? So I, I ask a teacher, why did you do what you did? Can we ask the principal the same mm-hmm. thing? Why did Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so do what they did? Yeah. And that's very much part of being an evidence-informed administrator is understanding and, and being able to give that power to those teachers to make those evidence-informed decisions and then share that back with you. Because the beauty of evidence is is when we share it, right? Mm-hmm. So I can do all kinds of innovations in my classroom, but if I'm the only one who ever sees them, they're not helping the other teachers, the other administrators, the other schools, districts, states that are having the same problem that I'm having. And so really sharing that work, engaging in those conversations, I think is really important. You would be an amazing admin. I don't know if you, you've done <laughs> that, but just to hear you, I'm like, you gotta, you're thinking and just explaining, I wish, you know, we all had more principals who had that same um just that same train of thought. <laughs> now we know the research um, and data is there, right? When we talk about best practices for teaching, what would you say to a teacher who maybe is frustrated because they know what the best practices are, they know what the data says, but they're continually asked to go against the research? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where those conversations are so important and being able to empower yourself with that information and advocate for yourself and your students. And the the challenge of being an advocate is you're going to lose more than you're going to win, right? Um, but every time we can kind of chip away at why are we doing this and this doesn't make sense or this is working better for me, why am I not allowed to do it? Every time we can chip away, we get closer and closer to being a fully evidence-informed profession. And don't you think too, there's like a way to go about it as well when you're, <laughs> you know, bringing up concerns and, and things like this. I, I've learned that the hard way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Calm years. is always better. Calm and rational. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel like in this sort of post-COVID, I don't know, I could say post-COVID yet, but whatever Who it knows? is, yeah. we're, this time that we're in today, I feel like it's um, the louder you are the more effective you think you are, but really that is not getting you where you need to be. 
Um, we need to think about calm, rational, detailed decisions and arguments. That makes sense. Totally makes sense. All right. My last question I'm wondering, you've shared some really great ideas and tools and things to, to look at and analyze and, and data to collect. Is there anything out there that's really simple, easy to use that can support teachers in the data collection process? Yeah, I've worked on a lot of work in that space. Um, and on my website, there's a section called The Repository. So if you go to matthewbcourtney.com and click on The Repository right at the top, this is where all my free tools live. I have six auto-analysis tools. And so teachers can upload spreadsheets to those tools and they will spit out instantaneously um, all kinds of statistics and graphs and charts so that you don't have to spend time doing that. You can just interpret and make decisions. Um, they work so fast that if you follow me on Twitter, um, you'll see that I post GIFs of them um, in action because they really are so fast that I can make those two second little GIF videos and uh, and share that. So I would encourage teachers to use those. They are free uh, and they will be free forever. I'm committed to that. That's awesome. We will leave a link. I was actually playing around with them earlier just to see what's there, especially for you teachers who do a lot of things with Google Forms and spreadsheets or you're collecting work Google Classroom that way. That's something you can just download that and then upload it to there and kind of see see who's going to the bathroom all the time or when are they going or what, you know, you can figure out, you can figure out why. Super yeah. cool. Where else can everyone find you and connect? Yeah, so um, Twitter and YouTube and my website. Those are really the best ways to get me. Um, I'm also super communicative. So if you follow me on Twitter, you log into my website, drop me a message. I will always respond to you. Um, I love to sort of engage with teachers. Um, and even if you're just stuck, you don't know what to do and you just need a word of advice. Um, I'm always happy to offer that as well. I love connecting with classroom teachers. And it's something that I just don't get to do enough. I love it. Well, we'll leave all those links in the show notes. And before we go, we have been playing word association games. I don't know um, if we shared that with you or not, but I've got <laughs> a couple words. I just want to, I want you to share like the first thing that comes to mind okay. when you hear it. It's nothing scary. I promise. Okay. Got it. <laughs> all right. First word, data. Insight. Pineapple on pizza. Delicious. Thank you. You're the first person <laughs> who said that. <laughs> All right. Since you work with little ones, you, you'll relate. Wet shoelaces. Oh, Jeremy. <laughs> Rigor. Misunderstood. See, the teacher I interviewed last week, she said mortis. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, oh, wait, I was not. <laughs> I'm not thinking. All right. Last one. Uh, cafeteria food. Uh, the most important food in town. Really? Well, I do know why you say that. That makes sense. Do you guys have that just by where you're at? We're in California. Do they, mm -hmm. are they doing free breakfast and lunches right now? Is it a federal yes. thing right now or mm -hmm. just by state? Um, it's federal thing. States have to opt into it. So a little bit of both. Got it. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, taking time out of your busy day. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And just sharing your knowledge and your value with educators everywhere. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Had a great time. And everyone else, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, make sure to take some time for yourself today. You deserve it. You work hard and you need some rest as well. All right. See you next week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Real Teacher Talk. Every episode you finish brings you closer to enjoying your time both inside and 
and outside of the classroom. If you love what you're hearing each week, let me know by leaving a rating and a review. And while you're there, don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And as always, you can head over to easyteachingtools.com to check out all the links and resources from this episode in the show notes. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.